Hey, this is Big Rev. Thanks for tuning in to Masterclass Theology, a weekly podcast where we study books of the Bible a verse at a time and apply it to our lives. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's rock. Hey, welcome, everybody. Welcome to Masterclass Theology. My name is Mick, and we're going to be teaching from the book of Revelations, chapter four, as we continue our uh, series on the hymns of Revelation. Um, and before we start, we're going to open up in a quick word of prayer. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you because we recognize that you are our creator, you are our sustainer, and as we're going to see in this passage in Revelation, you are our savior, you are um, almighty, and you are great, you alone are worthy. And again, we're going to see so much about you as we as we get into the text tonight. And I just pray that as we dive in and as we unpack the, the scripture that we're going to read, that that you would um, open our hearts and minds to understand what it is that you would have us understand today. Maybe it's something we've known before and, and we need it to be reminded of, or maybe this will be something brand new. Um, in all of this, we pray that you are glorified and that your name is lifted high. And we pray this humbly in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So um, I'm going to start by reading the uh, actual scripture that we're going to be jumping into today. And it's uh, Revelation chapter seven. First, for the sake of context, we're going to read the, the chapter for the most part. Uh, and, um, and it goes like this. Um, just for uh, those of you who are wondering, I'm going to be reading from a different version than the usual ones. Uh, it's called the NET. Um, and here it goes. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so no wind could blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east who had the seal of the living God. He shouted out with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given permission to damage the earth and the sea. Do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees until we have put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, I heard the number of those who were marked with the seal, 144,000 sealed from all the tribes of the people of Israel. Now, if you'll indulge me. Uh, we'll forego reading verses 5 through 8, which essentially said uh, that there are 12,000 Israelites from each of the 12 tribes of Israel that were sealed. And moving down to um, verse 9, after these things, I looked, and here was an enormous crowd that no one could count, made up of persons from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, dressed in long white robes and with palm branches in their hands. They were shouting out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels stood there in a circle around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they threw themselves down with their faces to the ground before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these dressed in long white robes, 
who are they and where have they come from? So I said to him, my Lord, you know the answer. Then he said to me, these are the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And the one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will never go hungry or be thirsty again. And the sun will not beat down on them, nor any burning heat, because the lamb in the middle of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow. After this, things have been leading up to this chapter, uh, to chapter seven. So far in chapter six, as you guys remember last week, we, we read chapter five, but we didn't read chapter six because we're focusing on the, on the hymns, not necessarily the book of Revelation as a whole. But still, uh, in chapter six, we see that the seals are being opened. Um, and the, these are highly anticipated seals. Uh, once again, going back to chapter five, we see that John is weeping bitterly because there is no one who is worthy to open the seals until Jesus comes into the scene and he is able to open this. Okay, so this is a big deal for John and it, and it ought to be a big deal for us too, because when it seems that that evil is constantly winning and that nothing seems to stop the Romes of John's time and the Babylons and and all those kinds of empires that they all represent, we need to be reminded that good does triumph over evil and that the slain Jesus really is, is the victor. So here comes Jesus, the lion and the lamb. And he takes the book or scroll and he breaks the seals. And the crowd goes wild in the, in the heavenly scene as a sonorous uh, worship chorus starts praising God and Jesus. After the song in chapter five and after the breaking of the seals begins, uh, this brings us to the after this of chapter seven. After events start ramping up in the first three and a half years of the tribulation, that, that is what I believe the first six seals uh, are covering, we, we come to an interlude where there will be no more, in, well, well, there will be more interludes as we approach uh, the seven trumpets and seven bowls. Here in chapter seven, however, there is now a laser focus on Israel. Uh, during the tribulation and, and after the church has been raptured, um, God returns to dealing with the Jews as a focal point. Uh, and this is as good a place as any to point out that the 70 weeks, also referred to as, also known as the 70 weeks, prophesied in the book of Daniel, concerns promises to, to the nation of Israel. Um, and it's a special place in, in salvation history. Each of the seven or, or each week that rep represents a seven year period uh, between when Artaxerxes of Persia made the decree to rebuild Jerusalem in 445 BC to Jesus' triumphal entry, 69 of the 77 have been fulfilled. So there's only one seven left. Uh, we look at Daniel 9.26. It says the following. And after the, the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall come, shall be cut off, I'm sorry, and shall have nothing. 
and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. If you guys notice something here in this prophecy of, of, of these weeks, nothing in it indicates an immediate start to the 70th week. Um, because you would think that this, that seventh week would have happened after Jesus' triumphal entry, and yet it doesn't. Uh, it, it talks about the, the crucifixion of Jesus. It talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple and the, the events that themselves are, are those events themselves are 36 years apart. Uh, so this is not an uncommon feature, however, in messianic uh, uh, prophecies where it doesn't follow through like we would think when we do a straight read. Um, in fact, um, the example that came to mind was that um, when Jesus was reading the scroll in the synagogue and he was reading from Isaiah 62.2, if you notice, Jesus only reads up to the, the year of the Lord's favor. He just stops right before the end. He stops right before the end, and he doesn't get to the day of God's wrath. In other words, on the, on the sevens and, and his Israel program, we are still anticipating the last seventh. So that seventh hasn't taken place yet in human history. Um, with the spotlight here down on Israel, it is now Revelation 7 where we, we're going to start looking more closely at the 70th seventh. Uh, what we see is God doing what he has always done in Israel's history, separating a remnant for himself. Uh, we see this with, with, when he starts selecting, in, when he starts sealing uh, his, his, uh, from each tribe, a remnant. And this is something that, that God does very often. So he has selected a number among, among, the, mish, for the, among the nation of Israel, and their purpose during the Great Tribulation um, it will be to evangelize what I'm going to call the post-rapture, post-church world. Okay, church age is over by this point in history that we're in Revelation. Now it's, it's the time of the tribulation. So now the church is out of the picture. So Israel is now going to start fulfilling the purpose that God had, had planned for Israel all along since he made the initial promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where he says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you of being a blessing to the nations in a way that at least intentionally Israel has not been in its history. So while group one, the 144,000 Jews are sealed, that is they're safe and secure witnessing for Jesus, the Messiah on earth. I believe group two is the Gentiles who are saved through their ministry and are now secure before the very presence of God in this scene. Um, and in a real portrait of what true unity before Jesus looks like, you have all the people in one unified voice shouting out, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the lamb. But, but wait, it gets better. Along with all the angels and elders and, and the cherubim, all together, they all worship God singing, amen, Praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. As we know, amen means so be it. Some people would say, or let it be. The point being is, this is when we read amen, um, Jesus used the term amen very much during his ministry. 
anytime you guys read in your Bibles, when Jesus says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, or I tell you the truth, and he usually does it like twice, that's basically the amen. He's saying amen. So this is something that's, that is like, yes, so be it. Praise and glory and honor. So praise is what God is due, it's simply because of who he is. Just the very fact that God alone is creator, that God alone um, is the sustainer of the universe, that God alone is the only completely independent being in all existence. All existence depends on God. So that alone is reason for God to be praised or, or blessing as, as some translations have it. Um, he is, as Revelation 1.8 says of him, the Alpha and the Omega. He is, as, as Revelation 1.4 said even earlier, him who is and who was and who is to come. But this is very reminiscent to what God told Moses when he first introduced himself to him during the burning bush. He is due glory because all of us owe our existence to him. Um, his wisdom has to do with his omniscience. Um, thanksgiving is owed to him because of all his good gifts. And in this context, especially for his salvation. If you notice, the section starts off that salvation belongs to our God. Uh, along the lines of thanksgiving is honor, which is due to him because we esteem him for saving us. And um, lost my place here for a moment. And in Revelation 1a, because he is the Alpha and the Omega, and he is, and he is, uh, and who was and is to come, um, he is also called Almighty because of those things. This is why we recognize his power um, for, from him has to do with his power, uh, which comes from within him. Again, his power comes from within him. Any of us, we get our, everybody or everything else, every empire, every person, we get our power from God. Everything else depends on something else for its strength. An army depends on weapons. A king depends on his army. We depend on food. God does not depend on anything. That's why he alone is the almighty, okay? Everyone depends on, on, on someone or something except for God. Kind of reminds me of a Bob Dylan song. You know, you're going to have to serve someone. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. Because you know what? God is the only one. God is the only one who we can really, you know, who, who who's completely independent. Whereas the praise in Revelation chapter 5 was about God's sovereignty and the, and the and his authority. This song, while in many respects very similar to it, uh, praise and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and strength, it focuses on God and God alone for salvation. God alone as the Savior. This is the message that we teach today. It's not in, our, in and of ourselves. It's not in our strength. It's not in our cunning. It's not in our wealth or our families or, or any of our allegiances, whether to a company or government or whatever, or anything outside of God. These Gentiles who were saved during the tribulation have been martyred and they have lost their earthly lives. Unlike the 144,000 who have been sealed during, during this time and for, for the great tribulation witnessing. Uh, but we, the church of Jesus Christ today, who live in, if you will, the pause before the 70th seven called, you know, we, we live in this pause called the church age. If we live 
to that time, just before the 70th seven begins, um, we will have been raptured by that point. Uh, in verses 13 to, to 17, the elder tells John, um, tells John uh, that these martyrs were saved during the tribulation. So they're the ones that, that are described. Um, they're the ones wearing the white robes with, with the palms and now are literally in the presence of God 24 seven. Uh, they're worshiping God, no, no longer suffering any of the, uh, anything anymore as, as God has wiped every tear from their eyes. To be clear, um, up to this point, all of this is a prelude. And there's going to be several of these preludes as we get into each of these songs. Uh, remember that even though we are not covering this in the series, which we're, we're focusing on the hymns to this point, only six of the seals so far from the scrolls in chapter five have been opened. Uh, we've yet to see what happens once the seventh seal is open and the unleashing of the seven trumpets, which in turn will unleash the seven bowls of God's wrath. Uh, the six seals happen in the first half of the tribulation, I believe. But once it gets to the seventh seal, that's, I believe that's going to be the second half. And at the risk of sounding like uh, that BTO song, you ain't seen nothing yet. And as the imagery escalates, you better believe that the hymns are going to keep on escalating. Spiritual warfare, and that's what, what's at the heart of these hymns, spiritual warfare is unlike earthly, earthbound warfare. It is fought by worshiping God, knowing full well that, that Jesus is already victorious. Um, if the threat of death is 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 worse the threat of death is worse than than rome babylon and satan have to offer if that's the worst it has to offer um we have nothing to worry about because in jesus he's already defeated death we have resurrection um jesus saves us from the clutches of death if that's the worst that these things could can, can happen i mean there's nothing really for us to fear think of what it says that they are armed in, in heavenly worship with what? It says that they're in, in Revelation 5, it says that they are armed in heavenly worship with the prayer of the saints. Think about that. The prayer of the saints is the arm of the worship. Um, Ephesians 6, 12 and Matthew 10, 28 reminds us that the real battle isn't with those who can only kill the body, but with the invisible enemy who can lead us away from worshiping God in spirit and in truth, as it says in John 4, 23 and 24. No, we, we don't fight with conventional tools. We fight through prayer and worship. These are not just praise hymns. Um, these are, are, yeah, and they are praise hymns, but they're not just praise hymns. These are both praise hymns and battle hymns. They're battle hymns of victory, victory in our God. Uh, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Praise and glory with wisdom. And wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power be to our God forever and ever. So let's go back to Revelation 1.10. What is John telling us there? He tells us that even, it, it, he tells us there that even while he was in exile, think about this, even while he was in exile, what was he doing? It was the Lord's day. He was in the spirit. He was worshiping. Think about it. In the dire circumstances that John the apostle find, found himself as he's writing this book, he is worshiping God. Uh, the events in Revelation are punctuated by the songs of, of heaven. 
John is reminding Christians of all times of several things. No matter how bad your circumstance, no matter how bleak your life looks and the future looks against the Goliaths, the Romes, the Babylons that, that we may find ourselves in, Jesus is the king and the battle is already won. Jesus is God and he's coming back. God is our savior. Continue worshiping him is what he's trying to get us to, to understand here. Continue worshiping him. If the worst the enemy can ultimately do is kill us, we've got nothing to worry about. Again, not only has he defeated death, but he's going to restore us back to life. But he's not just going to restore us back to life. He's going to restore us to what I'm going to call a, a 2.0 version of, of life. What life should have been if sin and suffering and death were never part of the picture. And, and there will be, again, the emphasis there will be no more suffering and, and every tear will be wiped away by God. So don't believe the enemy's hype. It was Rome in John's time. And he it was hunkering down on, on believers everywhere from all the persecution, for all the persecution that most of us are suffering during, well, again, during this time called the church age. Um, mind you, we're not going through things like, like Christians in China or, or Christians in Muslim majority countries where there you want to talk about really hostile environments. So we have a, uh, we have a, as we look at the letters of revelation that reminded the church then and reminds us today, not to get seduced by compromising with the enemy, not to have a false sense of security, financial or otherwise. That was the general message of the letters to the seven churches earlier in the book. And it's still very applicable today. Um, I shared this on Facebook earlier in the week, and I'll share it here again. As we saw in last week's chapter five song, where only God is worthy, and here where only God can save, praise, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and strength, they all belong to God. Uh, this is God's world, not ours. It's about God's glory, not ours, and certainly not of, of, of any world power. Like the visions illustrate, and as these songs explicitly point out, God doesn't exist to serve us. No, he is not here for our agendas. We are here to worship him and to give it all up to him. And that's what these songs are doing in, in Revelation. And so far, we see that they're, they're escalating. And as we keep approaching the, the last ones of the book, we're going to see how sonorous these songs are going to get. And that's something that should excite all of us and give us hope in these times that we live in, where we're constantly in positions where we need to compromise or we're, we're, we're tempted to compromise and are constantly being seduced by the enemy. Um, so just, again, when, 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 you're, when all things are down, worship God. It's what we're going to be doing for all eternity. Don't, don't relent. Keep worshiping God. And that is the lesson for today. Thanks for listening. This has been Masterclass Theology. This has been Masterclass Theology. I pray you've been challenged and encouraged during today's episode. And I hope you'll continue to join us as we journey through the Bible. God bless.